Welcome. This is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is Exploration. Every week on Exploration, we discuss the fascinating world of science and its impact on society. And today, we're going to talk about the borders of science, what happens when science becomes the paranormal. What happens when people believe strange things? And what happens? Well, sometimes these strange things turn out to be true. With us today is the leading skeptic, the man who says, bah, humbug, whenever you see these science specials about voodoo and magic and talking to dead people on television. He's Michael Shermer, founder of the Skeptic Society, author of a number of books about the paranormal. And he is a, quote, debunker, unquote. Now, let me be very clear about this. He will also probably say something that will probably offend somebody out there. However, he is the leading skeptic, and that's what he does. He's the one who says, bah, humbug, bunch of nonsense being promoted on television. Well, you can challenge him. The Skeptic Society has a website, so if you don't agree with all, every position taken by Mr. Shermer, engage him on his website. So once again, our special guest today is Michael Shermer, founder of the Skeptic Society and the Skeptics Magazine, author of a number of books about the paranormal, and he is America's, quote, number one debunker. Well, you decide. I'd like to introduce our special guest for today. He's Dr. Michael Shermer. He's a regular columnist for a scientific magazine. He's also the publisher of Skeptic Magazine and a founder and director of the International Skeptic Society. So today we are going to be talking about, well, conspiracy theories and stuff you see on television and also the controversy around evolution. We'll be talking about 9-11 conspiracies. Was the World Trade Center brought down by a conspiracy originating in the United States? And for that matter, how do they do those TV shows that you sometimes see where somebody claims to talk to dead people and spirits? And also, what about the controversy concerning Charles Darwin? The controversy does not exist in Europe, and many Europeans are rather amused that the American people seem to be gripped with this crisis over evolution theory. So once again, we're talking to Dr. Michael Shermer, author of the new book, Why Darwin Matters. The first question for you, Dr. Shermer, is explain to us the skeptics movement. Uh, well, we started the Skeptic Society and Skeptic Magazine in 1992, but um, there's been for half a century a skeptical movement that was uh, kind of begun by Martin Gardner and James Randi and others, um, when the whole business about Uri Geller and the spoon-bending psychic stuff was uh, picking up steam in the 70s. That, that's when the modern skeptical movement really took off. And our magazine, the purpose of it is to, um, well, two things, really. Uh, we are debunkers, let's face it. Uh, you know, there's a lot of bunk out there, and Part of our job is is to uh, like trash collecting. It's a dirty job, but somebody's got to do it. And uh, 
So that's part of it. But uh, to me, that's not the most interesting thing. I mean, like lining up the claims of the creationist or 9-11 conspiracy people or whatever and, and uh, answering them one by one is, is something somebody needs to do, and that is what we do. But but on a larger scale, I'm more interested in the power of belief, how belief systems work, how people come to believe such weird things. You know, I mean, I wrote a book about this, why people believe weird things. I mean, it is an interesting question, uh, particularly smart people. I mean, you know, college professors believe weird things. And so how, how, how does that happen? I mean, if they're so smart, what's going on here? And the, the short answer, as it turns out, is that most of our beliefs are held for non-smart reasons. That is, psychological, emotional commitments that we make, depending on our peer groups and mentors and where we were raised and the beliefs of our parents and things like that. And then we, then we back up into the beliefs using rational arguments to justify them after we already hold those beliefs. And um, so that, that's something I've learned uh, in this job. And I guess there's no gene for rigorous scientific thinking, right? I mean, no one's born by saying that things have to be falsifiable, testable, reproducible. We humans sort of like grab on to anything that comes along sometimes, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, we're not natural-born scientists, although we are natural-born causal seekers. I mean, we're pattern-seeking animals. We look to connect the dots A to B to C. And in the natural environment, often those dots are really connected. They really are causally connected, and we're good enough at it to be able to survive and have evolved to where we are now. But the problem is is that we make a lot of um, uh, false positives, these so- so-called type 1 errors, when which we assume something is real when it's not. And it, generally, it doesn't cost you anything. It doesn't take you out of the gene pool. And, um, and to assume that there's something there that isn't, like let's say if I spin three times to the left, it'll bring on the rain or be good for fertility or something like this, um, that, that doesn't cost me anything. It doesn't, it's not going to take me out of the gene pool. So we've inherited the capacity for superstition and magical thinking. And then it's only one small step from that to <clears throat> also assuming that other agents have intentionality. That is, agents like other animals, other people, other animals. Uh, you don't have time on the plains of the savannas of Africa <clears throat> to uh, calculate whether that cheetah or that lion is, is, is interested in you or not. The, the safest thing to do is just always assume he has intention, and the intentions are bad. <laughs> and so run like hell. Uh, and so if all agents have intention, which is an easy assumption to make, then it's a small step to assuming uh, so does the inanimate world. Planets, rocks, trees, the lightning, clouds, they all have intention too. And, the, and, and it, something with intention is an agent, a, a, a being, a god, if you will. So there you see how we get from animism to polytheism to monotheism. That is, we assume that there's some causal agent in the, in the universe at work, and that, that today we call God, but other people in other times call it something else. Now, I understand that some brain scientists have looked at something called epileptic lesions, uh, damage to the brain, whereby people look, people see causal things everywhere in the universe if they suffer from epileptic lesions. If it rains, it's because they did something bad the other day. It's a punishment. Mm-hmm. Almost anything around them has some kind of supernatural causal basis to it. And uh, this can actually be induced artificially, I understand. Yeah, this is uh, the work of several scientists. Um, Ramachandran in, at UC San Diego does stuff on uh, temporal lobe seizures and how that generates incredibly intense religious experiences, including the hearing of voices and whatnot. There's a guy named Michael Persinger at Laurentian University who uh, puts, I went and did this, he puts this helmet on your head and bombards your temporal lobes with uh, electromagnetic patterns, waves of patterns, and and he's able to generate very, very mild, generate uh, out-of-body experiences, and the, the sense 
presence in the room. You're in this little isolation room uh, that's completely quiet. And um, so by doing that, he he hopes to try to replicate how it is that some people have these remarkable experiences. But I don't think that explains why people believe in God, because the average person who says they believe in God, that, that, you know, 92% of Americans say they believe in God. Most of them don't hear voices. They're not talking to angels. You know, they, they're not sensing aliens or a, angels coming into their room and nothing like that. They believe because they were raised to believe. They raised they were raised in a Christian culture. Most of their parents are, are religious. And that that's why most people believe. It has to do with psychology and, and, and culture more than anything else. And also, you said it doesn't uh, take you out of the gene pool to believe in these things, but doesn't it actually strengthen your chance of survival to complete the dots? I mean, if you see, you think you see a tiger in the uh, forest, you complete the dots, and you say, oh, there's a tiger there, right? Yeah, that's right. But uh, nine times out of ten, there's no tiger. Yeah. Uh, there's no face on Mars. Uh, there's no uh, Donald Duck in the clouds in the sky. <laughs> but the brain says, by God, it looks like Disney characters up yep. in the sky. And the brain does that naturally because, in some sense, one time out of ten, it actually probably saves your butt, right? That's right. So uh, magical thinking and superstitious thinking is actually just part of a larger, what I call a belief engine. That is, we just form... Uh, causal connections and beliefs about everything. And sometimes they're true. They're true often enough that it helps us. But the rest of the time that they're not true, the false positives, um, so what? It doesn't really hurt us. So we've inherited that. It's never going to go away. I have job security at Skeptic. (laughs) (laughs) People will always be believing weird things. Uh Okay. And let me ask you a personal question. Why get into this business? Because it's a thankless job. You probably get a lot of angry letters from fans of Bigfoot. Uh, you probably get a lot of angry people saying, how dare you question whatever. It's a thankless job. Why do it? <laughs> uh, well, I do get some of those letters, but I, actually I get far more letters thanking me uh, from scientists in particular who uh, appreciate what we do on the fringes of science there and uh, defending science and science education. And, you know, it's, it's, like, uh, it's like they don't have time to do it. Scientists are busy doing their science. So somebody has to do this. And, um, and also we're constructing a whole worldview, a scientific worldview, scientism, if you will. And in a sense, it's, it's not an all-encompassing thing, but it, it does attempt to uh, give some spiritual meaning to people's lives who don't believe in God. That is, I think, um, if spirituality is a way of being in the world in which you have a sense of awe and wonder about things bigger than you, <coughs> what does that better than science? I mean, a Hubble Space Telescope photograph of the expanding galaxies and all that. Wow, that's just incredibly awe-inspiring. So that's another thing that we do is to try to be there for people as a, as a resource that, you know, hey, there's, uh, there's other people out here who, um, who embrace this scientific worldview. Okay, well, let's get right into some of the things that you've been talking about. I understand that you were quite busy talking about 9-11 conspiracies, conspiracies which are all over the web, but very rarely see the light of close scrutiny because they are on the web. So let's talk about some of these 9-11 conspiracies. Uh, Some people claim that there were explosives that brought down the World Trade Center because it seemed to be very systematically planned. The buildings went straight down. Well, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I'll tell you, I encountered this about two years ago uh, when a guy came up to me after a public lecture and started telling me about how the uh, World Trade Center was brought down by these squibs, these these demolition bombs, and and I was just standing there, mouth agape, going, what are you talking about? And and so he told me all about this book in France, uh, and I thought, oh, well, the French, you know, what the hell, they're always hammering the Americans, and this thing will never take off. And man, was I wrong. I 
I wrote a column about it because I thought it was in Scientific American. I wrote a column about the 9-11 conspiracy theory. So that's an easy target. And they just knocked them down. And I got hundreds of letters from from readers of Scientific American telling me that I was wrong, that, that in fact, there was some conspiracy afoot. And then, uh, and since then, it's just really picked up steam. There's this professor at BYU, um, Steve jo- uh, Jones, uh, I think his name is, who was uh, put on suspension for this. There's uh, this 9-11 Truth Committee, and they have conferences. There's this video on Google Video called Loose Change, the most downloaded video uh, this week. And uh, so here's the deal. They, they have to spin an incredibly elaborate uh, conspiracy to make this happen. That is, the Bush administration orchestrated uh, the bringing down of the towers and the attack on the Pentagon in order to galvanize the American public into going to war against uh, the middle, you know, against Iraq and so on, and perhaps Iran and whatnot. Anyway, just to galvanize the people behind the president. And, uh, <clears throat> and we can see how well that's worked. <laughs> mm-hmm. But in any case, um, so just take something like the physics of why the buildings fell. Um, we actually have a pretty good understanding of this now from the uh, architects who designed it and the people that built it and people that studied these things, that, um, that the impact of the planes damaged some of the internal structures. The fuel from the the planes um, only burned for a few minutes, but as we could see, the fires burned for far longer than that. What was burning were the carpets, the drapes, the desks, and lots and lots of paper. And that's what got the temperatures high enough not to melt steel. You don't have to melt it. They make a big deal about steel melts at 2,700 degrees and rocket fuel, uh, jet fuel only burns at 1,500 degrees, so that couldn't have done it. Yeah, but you don't, but, but first of all, other fires do burn hotter, wood, uh, desks, paper, and so on. But you don't have to melt it completely. You only have to weaken it, and that's, in fact, what happened. This cross beam sagged, pulled in the sides of the building by about five feet on each side, and the structure was already severely damaged uh, where the planes hit, and that's what caused the initial collapse and then the pancaking effect down below the floors, the floors below where the impact was. And another thing you know, I never thought about, yeah, why didn't the buildings fall over on their side and, you know, hit your apartment there? Well, um, because buildings like that are 90 to 95 percent empty space. They're offices. They're mostly air. There isn't enough structure to topple straight over on the side because, you know, the supporting beams go deep into the earth. So it could only go straight down. Uh, no matter how it was brought down, it could only go straight down. Then the conspiracy weaves even weirder than that. The Pentagon, they say, well, it was a cruise missile that hit the Pentagon. Well, there's eyewitness accounts that say they saw the American Airlines logo on the, on the uh, tail of the plane when it hit. And in any case, what happened to the plane, that flight, that disappeared the moment the impact happened on the Pentagon? If it was a cruise missile, where'd the plane go? And where's all those passengers? And, well, they have answers to these, uh, where the plane was flown to uh, Cleveland and the passengers were taken off, and then, well, but, but, but their families haven't seen them. <laughs> well, they were gassed. And so this goes on and on like this, and, and we can just stop right there and ask a simple question. Um, how could all those people that would have had to be involved in this conspiracy, hundreds, maybe thousands of people, they have to be in on the planning of the bombs, the gassing of the passengers, the bringing down of the planes, and so on and so on. Not one of them is going to talk. Not one of them wants to go on Larry King Live to say, have I got the story of the century for you, Larry. Not one of them wants to write a best-selling book. I mean, we know that people can't keep their mouth shut. Look at all the government uh, insiders that have come forth just since... um, the invasion of Iraq, to write, to, who quit, and wrote, now they're writing books, they're appearing on talk shows, they're on the lecture circuit. They can't wait to spill the beans about 
a little bit of inside dirt. Imagine if somebody actually had the inside scoop on the on the uh, conspiracy of the century. There's no way they could keep their mouth shut. Now, uh, I live just a few blocks. I used to live just a few blocks from the World Trade Center. And, of course, you don't want the buildings to topple over on their side because that would wipe out not just Wall Street but most of lower Manhattan and create a catastrophe much worse than the destruction of the Empire State Building. So the designers, in some sense, had that in mind. They designed a building that wouldn't topple over, that yeah. was designed to withstand an impact of a small jet airplane. But, of course, now we have jumbo jets uh, to totally loaded with uh, jet fuel. Uh, but what about the arguments of this physics professor, Steve Jones? Uh, People say, well, he's a physics professor, so he must know something. But what are your thoughts? <laughs> I don't know what the deal is with that. I mean, it's like, what? Uh, uh, why would an academic have <clears throat> any more inside information on, on, on why buildings fall? I mean, why buildings fall is a very specialized um, uh, field. I mean, there's hardly anybody that knows much about it, the people that do it. And, you know, the, the, the people that cleaned up the World Trade Center, by the way, uh, in, in addition to the firefighters and police and so on, were some demolition squads. You would think if... If there were squibs, there were little bombs that they would have spotted these things and brought them to the to the to the light. Like, hey, look what we found! This is incredible. Uh, uh, one of the problems with these conspiracy theories is that um, they're based entirely on anomalies. And as you know, in science, we have this problem, you know, the problem of uh, the residue problem. There's always a residue of unsolved mysteries that no, no theory explains every single piece of data, that there's always going to be a few weird things we can't quite explain yet. And we're working on those and so on. Or maybe some other theory will explain all the current data plus some of the anomalies. What conspiracy theorists do is they take just the handful of anomalies, ignore the vast body of evidence that's supported by the the predominant theory, and just spin a whole tale around that. It's like the UFO people do this as well. And uh, so... Why not take uh, Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda at their word? Uh, they, they said they did it. They were glad they did they it. They boasted they did it. They, they would do it again how in, they a, did it. in a heartbeat. Yeah. They're trying to do it again. So, I mean, right there, that's, that's you know, pretty obvious uh, what's going on. And, and in any case, the, the, the idea that the Bush administration, I mean, even people that can't stand Bush think this, this idea is idiotic. At its core is the idea that, the people that don't like Bush, that Bush is the most incompetent boob to ever uh, be in the White House. And, uh, and at the same time, he's managed to pull off the most incredible conspiracy of all time. He is so competent. Well, you can't have it both ways. <laughs> okay. Uh, let's move on to some other topics, because your organization, of course, handles everything. What about those people on television at night getting a lot of response that say they can talk to dead people? And it's quite dramatic. You see them out there in front of an audience, and afterwards there are tears and crying and sobbing as the family members say, yes, 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 uh, we thank you so much. You have uh, given us insight into our dearly beloved who just passed away. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, what are your thoughts about talking to dead people? Right. Well, it turns out anybody can talk to dead people. <clears throat> it's getting the dead people to talk back that's the hard part. <laughs> <laughs> I see. And that's all they're doing, really. Really, it's a show. Um, it's a it's a type of uh, psychic. Uh, it's a type of magic called cold reading, mentalism, where you pretend or you fake or you appear to be talking to dead people. You appear to be getting information from the other side, is what it is, and it's a trick. So, um, first of all, the people are prepped. They're ready. They're there because they want it to be true. So that makes it especially easy. Then you don't have to get a lot of hits. In fact, you only need to get about one out of ten. 
statements. We've, we've done a lot of studies on these. Uh, in, in the course of a one-hour reading, half-hour reading, whatever, a psychic will say hundreds of things, two to three hundred different comments and questions. And if they only get, say, half a dozen to a dozen right, the person going away is completely convinced. They'll, they'll come away and go, that's unbelievable. He got the name of my uncle, uh, George, who passed over. Yeah, but if you actually look at the tape, he went through half a dozen to a dozen names before he got to George, or he didn't even say George. He said, I'm getting some sort of a father figure. Who is this, please? And then the person will say, oh, that's my uncle, George. He passed over. And then the guy will come back and say, like 10 minutes later, go, no, I'm getting somebody here. Don't tell me his name. Uh, it feels like an uncle. Uh, is his name George? And the person will fall over just completely shocked that the psychic was able to get this. But, in fact, he didn't get it. They gave it to him. That's very typical of these kinds of things. So it's a trick. It's a cold, cold reading. Anybody can do it with a little bit of practice, and uh, nobody can talk to the dead. And also the audience, don't they, aren't they a little bit selfish? I mean, they want something. Uh, what they want is forgiveness uh, because this person passed away with unresolved problems. And they want that reassuring statement that from on heaven, uh, these people forgive you. And that's why they break down and sob. Yes. So isn't it, the audience, aren't they in some sense an unconscious uh, partner in this whole thing in the sense that they want something? They want forgiveness. Yep, yep. They, well, right, there's unsolved. Actually, if you do these things, I, I've done a couple of readings for TV shows and stuff. I always say something like that. There's some unfinished business here, isn't there? And the people, they cry, oh, yes, that's right, I wanted to tell him that I loved him. Something like that. Or, you know, I wrecked his car, I owe him money. <laughs> I want forgiveness for uh -huh. something like that. Um but but even more so, um, it's just sort of odd that if the dead really wanted to talk to us, why would they come up with the most inane things? Like, a, a red, he's telling me something about a red dress, or he's giving me his name. His name? He already knows his name. She knows his name. Can't we move on to something a little more important <laughs> about the unfinished business? They're always these trivial little things, and uh, that, that tells us that it's phony. And also, if you can really talk to the dead and un understand their secrets, uh, you'd know where buried treasure's located. Uh, you'd know where all sorts of riches and wealth can oh, be found. I always right? ask these guys, tell me where, uh, talk to Jimmy Hoffa and ask him where his body is. <laughs> you know, where's the body, Jimmy? Because right, <laughs> he uh, would know, right? <laughs> I, I suppose he would know, right? <laughs> I would hope so. Okay, well, moving on. Uh, your organization, of course, talks about a lot of things, so let's quickly just do a few things, like uh, Bigfoot or Bermuda Triangle. Uh, quickly, what does your organization say about those people who think there really is something to Bigfoot? Or well, in this case, it's not, it's not impossible. There might be uh, you know, a, 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 a bipedal hominid roaming the hinterlands of uh, the northeastern, northwestern United States. Who knows? But in biology, in order to name a new species, you have to have a type specimen, a holotype, a specimen that can be photographed, dissected, passed around, put in a museum, studied by other scientists. Uh, that's how you name a new species. You can't just do it based on uh, blurry photographs and grainy videos and anecdotes about weird things that go bump in the night. That, that doesn't constitute naming a new species, discovering a new species. So what I say to them is, show me the body. And until then it's reasonable to be skeptical. And also the, the famous videotape of Bit Bigfoot wa uh, walking away from the camera. Yeah. Uh, there's a man who claims that he is that man yeah. in the monkey suit. <laughs> the guy in the ape suit, yeah. And he claims how he did it. He goes into quite a bit of detail. He, he knew the people who uh, first surfaced with the tape. He was good friends with them. And he says that the three of them were, went into the forest, and he was basically afraid that some hunter would kill him because he was running around in a monkey suit. 
And that's why they, uh, of course, didn't uh, have that much footage of him, because he didn't want to be shot at. Yep. <laughs> that's right. Well, that's, you know, sometimes people claim hoaxes, they don't actually do them. But I think it's possible in that case he, he actually did. It, it certainly does look like a guy in an ape suit, clearly. Uh, but, you know, the, there's no smoking gun. No one's turned up the actual ape suit yet, so we'll see. And what about the Bermuda Triangle? Well, um, there you have an effect where um, all these wrecks allegedly happen happens to be uh, the area where there's probably the most shipping traffic in the world and the worst storms and hurricanes in the world. So just by that alone, you're going to get a lot of unusual um, seafaring accidents and things like that. If you, if you control for the baseline of, of how many accidents you would expect for that amount of traffic and that kind of weather, it turns out nothing unusual happens. Okay, and what about alien abductions? Some people claim that it is nothing but sleep paralysis involved, but that's, explain. That's the best theory we have going now. That is, we, we do know that a certain percentage of the population, uh, maybe one out of 50 or so, um, has sleep paralysis. That is, you wake up in the middle of the night in, in which you're so relaxed, you feel paralyzed, like you can't move. You're not actually awake. You're sort of in a dream-like state, but you feel like you're awake. But your body is prone and, and, and seemingly paralyzed. You can't move. And then you have a sense presence in the room and a feeling of something like comes into the room and sits on your body, sits on your chest. Middle ages, they called these the, the night crusher, um, the crusher that comes in the night. And this is a nightmare is what, what it was, a nightmare. And uh, then they called them incubi and succubi. These were, you know, demons. Satan sent them in. Uh, and a hundred years ago, it was ghosts and, and the poltergeists that came into the room. And today, it's aliens. And so the culture tells you what you're supposed to interpret that odd brain anomaly as. So it, it's, it's, a, it's a mental phenomenon. It's a brain, brain anomaly. And then the culture tells you what you're supposed to call it or interpret it or how the narrative is supposed to be constructed. Since we live in the age of science and science fiction and Star Trek and E.T. and so on, that, that's, 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 that's our angels. Now, I understand. I once interviewed a sleep expert. Uh, he said that when we dream, we are paralyzed. We're paralyzed when we dream. Otherwise, we sleepwalk and, yeah, and create all right. sorts of mischief. Yeah. However, there are these people, one in 50 or so, who, when they wake up, they're in this dream state where they are paralyzed, but they're conscious, semi-conscious. Yes. And then they have these, you know, nightmare recollections under hypnosis, uh, which brings us out. That's right. And uh, there is a small percentage also who who don't have that, but uh, they they have recovered memories of being abducted. And we know now that recovered memories are completely unreliable. They're brought forth by therapists who already believe in aliens and ask them leading questions. And then in the hypnotic... Uh, sessions, they, they construct false memories in their own minds of things that actually never happened. And we now know that that's really easy to do. And isn't that how people say that if you get hypnotized, you can go back to the days of Julius Caesar and why people claim that they are actually Mark Anthony or Cleopatra reincarnated? <laughs> because the therapist evokes images of yes. ancient Egypt and the movie Cleopatra. That's right. Why is it that no one, with reincarnation, no one ever comes back and says, well, you know, I was a shoe shiner. <laughs> or mass murderer. <laughs> uh, yeah, mass murderer. I was a grave digger. I was a nobody. <laughs> I didn't do anything. You're always Cleopatra. Right? Yeah, it's always something kind of sexy and cool. Right. Okay, let's now move on to the subject of your book tour. You must be on a very grueling book tour right yeah, now. Yeah, doing the West Coast the next month, uh, the East Coast, basically just um, giving lectures and doing media interviews on why Darwin matters. Thank you. 
And that concludes the first part of our interview with Michael Shermer. He's perhaps America's leading skeptic. You've probably seen him on television numerous times. However, I should point out that he may say a lot of things that you don't agree with. Well, it's a free country, and it's always good to encourage debate between opposing points of view. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College of New York, inviting you to the second half of exploration when we continue our dialogue with Michael Shermer. He's the publisher of Skeptics Magazine, founder of the Skeptic Society, and he's also a regular columnist for Scientific American. So if you subscribe to Scientific American, you've probably seen many of his op-ed pieces. And if you want a copy of today's program, you can always call the Pacifica Program Service at 1-800-735-0230. That's one 800 735-0230 for a copy of today's program. Welcome. This is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is the second half of Exploration. In the first half of Exploration, we introduce our special guest today, Dr. Michael Shermer. He's the publisher of Skeptics Magazine, founder of the Skeptic Society, and also a regular columnist for Scientific American, and he is America's number one debunker, which means he gets a lot of mail. A lot of mail, many from people that don't agree with his point of view. However, it's a free country, and he does have a definite point of view about the paranormal, about 9-11, about conspiracy theories, and even the prophecy of December 2012. That prophecy came and went. However, we have some pre-recorded comments about him before 2012 about that event. So once again, our special guest today is Michael Shermer of the Skeptic Society. Okay, now if you go to Europe, uh, many Europeans are amazed that Americans uh, are still fixated over this uh, the, the, the monkey trial of, of, the, of many decades ago. It's a settled question in Europe. In fact, uh, Darwin is on the money uh, in England. Yes, I know. Uh, however, here it's quite a volatile issue. Uh, why here and not in Europe? Well, in part because we have separation of church and state, and that drives churches to be much more uh, aggressive in their pursuit of their religion. And the kind of religion practiced here tends to be more fundamentalist, more literalist in its interpretation. Now, mind you, this is still a, they're still a minority, but they're a vocal minority, and they're a vocal minority that have money and therefore some political clout. So they're a lot more vocal than they actually are powerful, but nevertheless, they're there. And... So the four strategies they've developed since the Scopes trial, the first strategy was uh, banning the teaching of evolution, and that resulted in the Scopes trial. The second strategy in the 60s after Sputnik and the, and the reintroduction of science into, uh, and Darwin into public school classrooms brought forth uh, demands for equal time for Darwin and Genesis, and they lost all those battles on First Amendment grounds. Third strategy, 70s and 80s, was to demand equal time for evolution, science, and creation 
science. They just they just put a hyphen and stuck a word on the end as if that makes it science. And they lost those battles, including all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court in 1987, where the the uh, nine justices voted seven to two to uphold the Louisiana ban on equal time laws, and that killed creationism once and for all, or so I thought. <laughs> but as it uh, as it goes, uh, creationism keeps evolving and mutating in new species, which it's not supposed to be able to do. And in the 1990s arose this intelligent design movement, which is not your father's creationism. It's much more sophisticated. It's done by uh, guys with PhDs, uh, some of whom actually have academic jobs, and they write um, uh, they write books that are much more sophisticated than the old creationist books, and they have an agenda called the wedge in which they want to uh, break down the wedge separating church and state, and it begins with the secular materialistic worldview, which they believe is embodied in science in general and Darwin in particular. So that's where they got this idea is we have to topple Darwin and the theory of evolution to begin our long program of reintroducing Christianity into American public life. That is their goal. So whenever somebody pretends to be doing science, that's our bailiwick. That's what the skeptics do. We jump in there and say, okay, let's see your evidence. And so my book, um, I actually have a whole long chapter in which I have all of their arguments, the top ten arguments they present and the counters to them. And and then I go on from there exploring their agenda and their motives and so on. Okay, well, let's talk about some of those. Uh, some of the creationists claim that humans coexisted with the dinosaurs. The dinosaurs were wiped out by the flood, that uh, the world is only 6,000 years old. Uh, but, well, what are your thoughts, and uh, what are some of their best arguments? Now, on that, um, the, the, the modern intelligent design creationists, they don't believe any of that that you just said. That's the, those are young Earth creationists. They have purposely distanced themselves from them so that they can make more uh, headroom, head make more ground in public schools. So they say, no, the Earth is four and a half billion years old. We, we recognize that. Evolution does happen. It's microevolution, not macroevolution. And uh, the flood was a mythic story. It didn't literally happen. So by doing that, they've been able to get, curry a lot of favor amongst uh, more thoughtful intellectual people who do read the Bible more allegorically and metaphorically than literally. Um, so uh, their best arguments have to do with uh, biology and particularly the structure of DNA, the structure of the eye, the blood clotting mechanism, the bacterial flagellum, the little tail that, like on a sperm, like on a sperm cell, a little tail, tail like that, that propels uh, cells, and uh, any kind of complex molecular biological structure or function that they don't think Darwin or Darwinian theory can explain, that's where they think the intelligent designer stepped into our space and time and tweaked the system to get that going. That's, that's their core belief. And what is their best shot? If you were to try to tear down Darwin using that point of view, uh, what is their best shot? Their best shot is to try to find a, and Darwin himself said this in, his, in The Origin of Species, if somebody could show where it would be impossible to have a stepwise, gradual uh, buildup of a structure or function, then my theory would be would be shot. So that's what they're always looking for. They call this irreducible complexity, some sort of system in which, if you took out one part, it wouldn't work anymore. Therefore, it's irreducibly complex, complex structure that can't work without all the parts. Therefore, how would Darwin? How would a stepwise, gradual Darwinian method uh, system? 
build, say, an eye or a wing. Let's just take the wing, because that's a, such a classic one. We can certainly see what a fully functioning wing would do for an organism. It's adaptively functional. It's great for predator, getting predators, getting away from predators, catching prey, and so on. But what good would half a wing do, or 10% of a wing? How do you go from zero wing to 1% of a wing, all the way up to 100% of a fully functioning wing? Until you get to 100%, it's not going to, you can't fly. The answer is that it was not a poorly adapted wing along the way. It was a well-adapted something else, that something else being probably a thermoregulating device. Wings are terrific for uh, gathering, collecting heat, or holding heat in next to the body. Wings are also terrific for, like in penguins, to use as submarine devices, that is, for controlling uh, motion through the water. Uh, Wings are also good for, as it turns out, uh, animals that are running along the ground particularly if they're going uphill, can go faster if they uh, push with their wings along the ground or just push the air back. They don't actually have to achieve flight at all. They get a terrific advantage for uh, running speed. Um, And we know about already gliding squirrels, for example. Uh, You don't have to have fully functioning flapping wings. You can use ersatz wings for gliding. And all of those are stepwise ways that you can get from no wing to fully functioning flying wing because they were used for something else and then later co-opted for the current use that we see. And what about the eye? The eye, um, well, it's not true that the eye is, the human eye, say, is irreducibly complex. If you took out any one part, it wouldn't work at all. That's not true. People, lots of people have various uh, vision disorders in which they can only see partially, but they can see partially, and believe me, they'd rather see partially than not at all. It does give them some advantage. So it's not true. And, uh, in any case, if you look at just the current animal kingdom, you will find a whole sequence of eyes from the simplest you can imagine, a single eye spot uh, on a very simple organism in which its, its only job is to turn on or off if there's any kind of light at all, to a handful of eye spots, to a little pit that has a whole bunch of eye cells, uh, that is light-sensitive cells, uh, that give a tiny bit of directionality to the light, to a deeper eye pit, in which you get kind of a crude image forming. There's no lens yet, but a crude image forming on the pit that has all these light-sensitive cells, and all the way up to the uh, modern mammalian complex eye. So there, there is already a stepwise sequence just in current animals, and you can reconstruct how that could have happened from the fossil record. And also from DNA, uh, it used to be said in textbooks that the eye developed independently, evolutionarily speaking, many times in the past. But looking at the DNA, uh, that's apparently not true. Uh, Looking at the DNA, apparently all these so-called independent developments of the eye came from one, one original, one original gene where I think the, uh, it was sensitive uh, to light because of the chemical rhodopsin. Yeah, that's and, right. And that then set into motion all the other eyes, which we see in the fossil record, so that misled us into thinking that the eye developed many times. And actually, it was just one mutation, yep. uh, you know, hundreds of millions of years ago that set everything into motion. Yeah, it's, it's remarkable what we've been able to learn from the new, the new science of EvoDevo uh, and how single gene mutations or... Uh, chromosomal uh, replications can increase the amount of complexity of an organism instantly or start a whole new lineage of different structures, such as eyes or wings or something like this, a whole new set of body plans, for example, in the Cambridge, in the Cambridge explosion um, uh, in the, that Gould writes about in the Burgess Shale. There's all these new experiments going on here, and, and that can happen from an explosion. So uh, in that sense, insisting that everything be explained by 
Darwinian stepwise, very gradual, uh, incremental steps is not always the case. And we know this now from modern genetics and evolutionary development. Okay, now given the fact that there is no gene for science, uh, there's no gene for careful, rational explanations of phenomenon, uh, this debate over evolution will probably go on forever, right? One of the problems is that evolution is counterintuitive. You know, we evolved in what Richard Dawkins calls middle land, that is, the middle-sized, we're a middle-sized creature living in the, evolving in the plains of Africa with other middle-sized creatures like lions and tigers and, and gazelles and trees and 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 so anything that's like at the quantum level, atomic level, the galactic uh, cosmological level, these things we have no experience in our evolutionary history. Our senses aren't built to de- designed to uh, perceive them. We can't conceive of them. There's nothing in our intuitive world that allows us to easily grasp them. And evolution is like that in the chronological sense. We only live a few years to a few decades. So the idea of things taking thousands of years to change or millions of years. This is why the environmental movement has a hard time getting people uh, motivated about, you know, what's going to happen in the next thousand years or 10,000 years. Who cares? I'm worried about next weekend. (laughs) I can't really conceive of what a thousand years is in terms of my lifetime or 10,000 years or a million years. So evolution um, doesn't fit nicely into something that we're used to, whereas design does. We, we are familiar with lots of designed objects, and th- those designed objects are designed by intelligent designers called humans. And so we have vast experience with design. And um, I'm willing to concede the design argument on this level, that evolution itself is a designer. Wings are functionally adaptive, and that's a type of design. So let's go ahead and say, you're right, uh, the intu- intuition most people have that things look designed is because they are designed question is who or what is the designer? And the answer is evolution's the designer. Natural selection is the designer. It's a bottom-up tinker designer, not a top-down architectural planner designer, but it's a designer nonetheless. Now, isn't one problem the fact that since we evolved on a third planet of a, of a minor star in a very mild, temperate corner of the backwash of the known universe, <laughs> our common sense is actually not the common sense of the universe? Our common sense is really the anomaly. It's the exception. We live in an exceptionally mild corner uh, of the cosmos when the cosmos is quite hot, quite cold, quite radioactive, quite violent, and we assume that our common sense is good for the entire universe. Isn't that a problem? Yep, that's right. Uh, I mean, this whole idea of the fine-tunedness of the universe, the universe is so finely tuned for us. Well, not really. We're, we're finally tuned for just one tiny bit of corner, as you say. Most of the universe is completely inhospitable to life, and um, that's why it's been so hard to find any life beyond our own planet. It's probably, not, it's probably very rare. And uh, so in that sense, it's hard to not be egocentric to think how special we are. And it takes a little bit of effort, and this is one of the things science does so well, is to show that, in fact, we are special in the sense of being rather rare, and that it was... Um, you know, it, it was not, the universe was not designed for us. It's something of a fluke, and how fortunate we should feel that we are here. Well, let's change gears a little bit now and talk about popular culture. And speaking about media again, uh, vampires have been in the news. Uh, vampires are quite romantic, they say. Uh, however, what are your thoughts about uh, medieval um, dangers that uh, we celebrate on Halloween coming back? <laughs> right. Well, back, yeah. Uh, vampires. Um, I think this is more, instead of a media thing, more of a literature or sort of deeper cultural um, 
theme in in fiction that seems to appeal to people the whole dracula um uh, theme of of you know bloodsuckers da- danger in the night it's almost very demonic in a way that i think stems from uh middle ages uh, obsession with demons and incubi and succubi it's sort of another version of that somebody somebody or something that comes in the night to harass me in my bed uh, to molest me to take something from me um you know that's a very common theme that that uh, appears to be appears to have something to do with something called sleep paralysis um where you wake up in the middle of the night often early early morning hours 2 3 4 a.m. 5 a.m. Uh, in which you you feel like you're awake in your bed, and, but you can't move. You feel paralyzed, like uh, like you you want to get up and, and 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 leave, but you can't. And there's a sense presence in the room, like there's somebody here, uh, and uh, and who is that? So at that point, our uh, this appears to be a brain phenomenon. At that point, our culture steps in and tells us what to call those things, what how to interpret that uh, anomalous phenomenon and so centuries ago it was you know demons and incubi and succubi and then you know uh, maybe last year it was uh, or last century it was like uh, ghosts and and uh, poltergeists or something like that maybe Dra- you know dracula's vampires and then in our in our time it's more like uh, aliens are coming and harassing us in our beds at night and so the whatever's in pop culture that's in literature and in our case in films and tv that gets inculcated into our minds, and so when our brain has one of these anomalous hiccups, our our the, uh, uh, another part of our brain steps in and says, "Okay, we have to make sense of this weird, weird thing. What what is that? Oh, I know. I I saw this movie. You know, I'm I'm anthropomorphizing your neurons here, <laughs> but basically, you know, you're 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 calling it something that uh, your brain has been inculcating from pop culture, and that's how these things happen." Yeah, in fact, I had two of my acquaintances who actually have uh, sleep paralysis problems, and one of them actually thought she was going uh, crazy uh, having these experiences until it was finally explained to her that it's just nothing but sleep paralysis. But she told me that it's very easy then to slide into alien abductions. Uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. Uh, in fact, I was telling this to a, one of my cycling friends yesterday who was... Uh, who's from California, so he's a flatlander like me, but he was visiting um, Colorado where he was um, staying at a friend's house that it was at high altitude, like at 10,000 feet. And uh, and, and it's hard to sleep at, at at high altitude when you're a flatlander, a lowlander like us. And so he was having these really lucid dreams, these really weird, bizarre... Basically what it is is oxygen deprivation. You know, if you if you live uh, at sea level like we do, you, you have far fewer red blood cells than people that live at high altitude. Their uh, bodies produce more red blood cells to deliver more oxygen to their brains because they have less at high altitude. So basically you're you're starved uh, for oxygen. Your brain then starts to have these weird anomalous experiences. And that's, that, that is what we think happens with near-death and out-of-body experiences is they're um, anoxia or hypoxia, just not enough oxygen to the cortex causing your brain to have these sort of weird anomalous experiences, which, since your brain doesn't sense itself, it doesn't think, ooh, wow, I'm having these weird experiences that my, but I'm creating myself. What your brain th- thinks is, wow, there's somebody else in the room with me. <laughs> there's something else in here not that's not me. Uh, 
there's a not me in here, and that what do we call that not me? Well, it's a demon or it's an alien or whatever. What are your thoughts about transcranial experiments where you can actually shoot radio waves into the brain to induce the feeling of being religious? Uh, people say yeah, that. Yeah, I've done they, that. Um, this yeah. is um, Michael Persinger's research, I think you're referring to, at uh, Laurentian University in Sudbury, Canada, and he he puts on, you put on this God helmet, he calls it the God helmet. It's just a motorcycle helmet with some solenoids on the side, and he bombards your temporal lobes with uh, these magnetic fields. And uh, so temporal lobes are the sort of lobes of your brain that are above your ears, uh, left one and right one, and they, they do different things, but they seem to be related to, like, orientation in space and and uh, imagination and, and memory, some memory. And so when you start tinkering with those things, uh, you're sort of simulating uh, one of these brain hiccups, these little sort of anomalous things that happen. And so he puts you in this isolation chamber with the helmet on. You're in this big, easy chair, soundproof room. They turn the lights off, and, and you're just kind of there alone. And he turns on his little magic computer that starts bombarding your temporal lobes at these fields, and he, and he can create um, different sensations. It's not dramatic. It's not like you've taken a drug or something, and all of a sudden you're, you know, you're spinning out of control. It's not like that. It's a little more subtle. But uh, but it does give you a sense of, um, you know, there's somebody else in the room with me or I feel like I'm floating out of my body. Uh, I, ha- I had some some slightly anomalous experiences, not hugely upsetting, but other people have. I think because I'm a skeptic, I tend to sit there thinking about it too much, like trying to fall asleep by trying to fall asleep by thinking about it too much. It's harder to do or um, like I've tried to get hypnotized recently, and I I just can't do it anymore. I used to be able to do it in my 20s. It was kind of fun to get hypnotized, but I can't do it anymore because I sit there and think about it too much. So I think if you're you're a slightly fantasy-prone personality and you sort of are willingly suspending disbelief to enjoy like a movie, but in this case, enjoy an actual experience like that, you'd be more inclined to interpret those kinds of brain phenomenon as paranormal or supernatural. So let's talk about ghosts. Uh, there's even a program on the Discovery Channel, Ghost Hunters. There's so many different kinds of ghost movies and ghost programs. You whisper with ghosts. Uh, you talk to them. What are your thoughts? The ghost whisperer, right. <laughs> well, of course, there's no such thing as ghosts. The idea is that these are disembodied spirits of dead people. And if that were true, you know, there's about 6 billion people today, and there's uh, about 100 billion people have lived throughout history. So the numbers don't really add up. Where are all those 100 billion souls floating around or reincarnating or inhabiting different homes and hotel rooms or whatever? Um, You know, I mean, the whole thing doesn't make sense in that that sense. In any case, what would be the platform, the medium by which you transfer your memories from your, you know, neurons in your brain to what? To some sort of hologram, some sort of energy field? Anyway, no one has any good answers to that. What, what's really going on here here is that there's just unsolved mysteries. There's like spooky things that happen at night, creaky houses, creaky pipes, train goes by, shakes the house, houses are old, electrical systems go out, there's weird uh, lighting systems. Maybe it's the moon, maybe it's a reflection of a light in another house, maybe it's you know somebody just walking down the sidewalk and you hear them better at night because there's less ambient noise. You know, there's a whole bunch of just sort of anomalous things that happen. And if we don't have an explanation for it, our human mind just creates one. There's one thing we know about the human brain. It is not comfortable with uncertainty. Uh, 
nobody, hardly anybody ever says, you know what, uh, that's a weird thing, but I don't, I don't know what the explanation is, and I'm comfortable with that. Uh, I mean, even scientists have a hard time saying, I don't know. Um, but by profession, we have to say that. But, but for the most part, the brain just doesn't do that. So we fill in the gaps with ghosts or demons or angels or gods or whatever. That's, that's what our brains do. Okay, and I'm sure your group is flooded with UFO stories. Uh, what are your thoughts, especially about airplanes that seem to see things uh, following them that are tracked by radar? Uh, what are your thoughts? Right. Well, so, of course, pilots are no better observers than anybody else. Um, it's one of the sort of urban legends that goes along with UFOlogy is that if whatever it is you're excited about was spotted by a sheriff or a, a politician or a pilot or a policeman, somehow that, that makes it more valuable. Why? You know, the, the, their eyeballs and ears and brains work the same way as everybody else's. So there's no reason to think that there's anything special about that. Um, you know, when uh, when you know, pilots see things or whatever, just like anybody else, how do you know how big it is? I mean, when it's in the sky, there's no yardstick reference to say, oh, it's 150 yards wide and 300 meters long, and it was traveling at 300 miles an hour. I mean, people give descriptions like this, but of course, how would they know that? I mean, these are just complete guesstimates, and uh, and we know how bad people are as eyewitnesses uh, estimating those kinds of things. So, Really, what it is is just the brain filling stuff in, and and uh, and of course, when you ask, well, well, you know, if if only ten percent of these claims are true, there there would be thousands and thousands of visiting spacecraft. Where are they? I mean, why don't we have one? And and the answer is always, well, the, we do. The government's covering it up. So we're always back to the conspiracy theory that that is the lack of evidence is proof that it must exist because the government covered up the evidence, Area 51 or whatever. So our position on that is that, um, you know, there's probably intelligent life somewhere out there in the cosmos just by the sheer numbers of stars and planets and galaxies, but uh, they probably haven't come here because it's a long ways away between stars and a lot of empty space, and the stories we get about aliens are so human-like, they're so fraught with human frailty, the stories themselves, that is, that it's much more likely a, a human... Uh, error of thinking and cognition than it is an extraterrestrial intelligence. Well, have you ever had a sighting that was hard to dismiss, that obviously wasn't a meteor, wasn't the planet Venus, wasn't swamp gas, wasn't a radar echo, wasn't a weather balloon? Have you ever encountered an incident that you had difficulty explaining? <laughs> yeah, I wasn't a balloon boy. <laughs> um, well, sure. In fact, um, I'd say that probably 5% of all sightings uh, are unexplained. They're unexplained by by scientific standards and by UFO standards. Um, that is that is to say, the UFO believers and us skeptics, we agree that probably five five to ten percent uh, remain unexplained. And so, what do you do with those anomalies? That you know, stuff happens. We can't explain it. What do you do with it? Sci scientists will say nothing. You don't have to do anything with it. Just leave it sitting there. We'll get to it. Maybe, or maybe we'll never solve it. You just can't solve it. You can't, can't explain everything. What the UFO people do, by contrast, is to take that 5% of anomalies and turn it into a whole new worldview, a whole theory about aliens visiting and government conspiracies and cover-ups and what the aliens want and so forth. And uh, that's the difference between the skeptics and the believers. Is the skeptics are willing to live with the unknown and uncertainty, and the believers want to turn it into something dramatic. 
And any parting thoughts uh, for those individuals who may want to subscribe to your magazine, check out your website, or are simply fascinated by the unknown? Well, I, I think, gosh, you'd have to be made out of wood not to be fascinated by all this stuff. It, it is interesting. It, it, yes, it would be pretty cool if it was true, um, you know, but what we wish to be true and, and what is true is not always the same. And So if you're interested in, you know, what, what are the explanations for these different things, that's what we do. All issues of Skeptic Magazine going past, going back to the early 90s are still in print. You can order them. You can go to skeptic.com and look up the different subjects you're interested in, and we carry a whole catalog of books on these different topics. Um, and uh, so that's that's the best place to go. Walk into your local Barnes & Noble and Borders Books, pick up a copy of Skeptic, or go to skeptic.com and subscribe, and, or go to our website there and, and look to see uh, what subjects we've covered and, and uh, enjoy the process. And that concludes our interview with Michael Shermer, publisher of Skeptics Magazine and also founder of the Skeptic Society. Well, in the closing minute of exploration, let me make a short editorial comment. And that is that even though, even though most conspiracy theories are outlandish, wild, and preposterous, some of them, well, some of them actually turn out to be true. For example, for years back in the 50s and 60s, it was rumored. It was rumored that the CIA was conducting all sorts of bizarre experiments. Experiments with new chemicals, drugs, mind control, hypnosis, all sorts of chicanery going on behind closed doors. Many people said, ha, conspiracy theories. Well, during the Watergate hearings, the cat came out of the bag. 20,000 documents came out due to the Freedom of Information Act because of the chaos of the Watergate years, and it documented what is called MKUltra. In fact, the CIA did fund hundreds of experiments in the paranormal, mind control, hypnosis, drugs, all sorts of stuff came true. So in other words, sometimes, well, sometimes the conspiracy theorists are correct. Well, unfortunately, our time is up. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Our special guest was Michael Shermer, founder of the Skeptic Society. And if you want a copy of today's program, call the Pacifica Program Service at 1-800-735-0230. For a copy of today's program, call one 800 735-0230. That's the Pacifica Program Service. So, good day for exploration.